Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Ben Lockwin, fan favorite. And we're going to take on today coronavirus. We're going to take it on from a variety of angles. Ben's going to give us some background into what exactly a coronavirus is and how it's spread to the point it is now. And then we're going to turn it a little bit to some risk management issues because Ben's been thinking about this quite a bit. So, Ben, for that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's great to talk to you again. So, Ben, I think many Americans really, they're thinking this is the flu or maybe Spanish influenza or something that they have at least a recorded memory of. What is coronavirus? Yeah, you know, so I'm sure coronavirus is just about at the top of the world search terms in Google. If not at the very top, then very close. Coronaviruses are a type of virus that, frankly, we've known about for a long, long time. What strikes me as interesting with the recent outbreak is that about 10% of the cases for patients who come in with upper respiratory symptoms during the typical cold and flu season would test positive for a type of coronavirus. So the fact that we have this new SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus circulating, which is been the media's favorite topic over the past, oh, what, four to six weeks, is interesting because it refers to a family of these viruses. The coronavirus family itself, like I said, is not uncommon. What happens is you've got these viruses and they genetically shift or drift. The original source of this particular novel coronavirus, which isn't so novel at the moment, is not really clear to us yet. seems like the epicenter of the outbreak was Wuhan, China, and it seems like there's some sort of correlation with the open-air markets where there are lots of people, public spaces, and animals, and we do know that there are some species of viruses that can cross from certain animals into humans, so whether it be pigs to humans or birds to humans. So, yeah, right now, the original nexus of everything is uncertain, but what we do have certainty of is that we've seen coronaviruses before, and what they are, I guess, taxonomically, it's RNA material, so ribonucleic acid that we would find in any of our human cells, and it's ribonucleic material that's surrounded by what's called a protein capsid, so it's basically just a protective sheath. And then the coronavirus in particular is what's known as an enveloped virus. So around this durable sheath, there's also a lipid bilayer, and that allows the virus to stick on to host cells, and then it injects its RNA material into the host cells. And the host cell machinery essentially reproduces the virus in huge numbers, and then it goes into systemic circulation, and then you've got essentially what's called an infection in the host. It's so-called the coronavirus because it has these surface projections on the envelope and they look sort of like the solar corona around the sun. So when it was originally named, that's kind of how they tagged it with that. So it's roughly a spherical shaped virus and it has these little projections sticking off of it. So what are the symptoms of someone who has the coronavirus been? Well, like I said, in years past when 
cold and flu season hits worldwide, you can attribute about 10% of cases of respiratory infections to typical coronaviruses, which, to be clear, are not the same as this particular one that's circulating and has been featured in the news. The one that uh, we're concerned about right now, along with the media coverage, is what's formerly known as SARS-CoV-2, and that is associated with a disease called COVID-19. So this has gone through a few name changes over the past couple months. It was originally the Wuhan virus, and then it was the novel coronavirus, and then it was deemed 2019 NCOV, which was short for 2019 when it was first discovered. The N was novel, and then the COVID was coronavirus. And then COVID-19 essentially is an acronym which just pertains to the coronavirus, which is the COV part, COVI part, and then the D is the disease, and then the dash 19 was the year of designation. So COVID-19 is what it's been referred to now in the news since it was officially named on February 11th. And the symptoms have tended to be well, they range from mild to severe. They've been respiratory symptoms, so it would feel just like a chest cold, upper respiratory, coughing, trouble breathing. And in more severe cases, there have been fevers, potentially significant serious fevers. And there have been some cases, thankfully relatively few, but cases of organ failure and septic shock and other serious issues, including, of course, death. Then how does this disease spread? Well, like Virtually all other respiratory viruses, including influenza, this particular coronavirus is spread through aerosolized droplet infection mostly. So when somebody is infected with it and they're in a public place and they cough or sneeze, what they end up doing is essentially introducing very fine particulates of saliva and mucosa into the air. And then anybody who's co-located in that environment has the opportunity to inhale these particles, and then the virus replicates along the upper respiratory airways, so kind of along the trachea, inside the upper lung. And right now, it appears like the incubation period is anywhere from a couple days up to about two weeks. About 14 days right now is considered the maximum that we've seen as far as people being infected until they start to show symptoms of a full-blown infection. So having laid out sort of what the condition is, what the symptoms are, how people get that, could we perhaps now turn to some risk management topics, but could we start off on focusing on what does the medical community say about managing this risk? Yeah, great question. You know, the medical community is, I wouldn't necessarily say divided. Everyone's trying to row in the same direction and do the right thing. A lot of questions are coming up just about how we will mount an internationally appropriate response. Clearly, there's stigma associated with it, and that's causing a lot of travel restrictions, interest in protecting borders, repatriating people to within their home countries if they've been abroad. And I think those are certainly smart means. What we have now is an outbreak. It hasn't really fit the criteria for a pandemic yet, although that's kind of a loosely defined set of criteria for when it actually shifts over into pandemic, essentially when it becomes fully global and community transmitted, then we would call it a pandemic. I think as far as where we're all trying to get to within the healthcare community, it's to make sure that anybody who has respiratory symptoms, to make sure that they go see their healthcare provider 
right now, the only way that they can have a test done to determine if this is actually COVID-19, which is this particular newsworthy coronavirus infection, is to have respiratory samples sent to the CDC. So the CDC right now is doing all the testing for it and just making sure that we practice hand hygiene, number one. So if ever you've been out in a public place, making sure that you are very careful about hand washing, not putting your hands near your eyes, near your nose, into your mouth, or touching food that you eat, which could all, of course, transmit the virus into the mucous membranes. There's kind of still an open-ended question that folks are debating about as far as masks are concerned, so whether it be in, in large public areas or sporting events or on airline flights, if masks are appropriate. That is an open question. I was recently speaking with a pulmonologist, and he and his team have been under the impression that pretty much any sort of facial mask, including the paper kind and surgical masks you might get at the drugstore, would show some sort of efficacy and be marginally helpful at at least blocking any particles that somebody may have coughed out in the environment. So it wouldn't be necessarily foolproof, but they are considering that it would be a value add. Right now, it looks like if you've been fever-free and you've had two uh, negative samples taken at 24 hours apart, that you'd be considered free from uh, COVID-19 infection if you had had it. So we're not really sure the extent of the spread yet, because I'm sure there are a lot of cases that haven't been appropriately diagnosed. But what we do know as far as trying to reduce the public concern is that there was recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association an analysis of about 72,000 patients. And this coronavirus in particular seems to have a case fatality rate of 2.3%. So the range is about one and a half to three and a half percent. And so what that basically means is that it's fatal in about 2% of the people so far that we've seen who have been diagnosed with having the disease. So it's really not out of the ballpark of what we've seen with some past infections, respiratory infections, and certainly seasonal flu continues to give us issues. For example, and in context, just in the United States, this flu season, since back to about October, we've had about 22,000 people die in the United States from flu and its related complications. And at the moment, we haven't thankfully had any deaths in the U.S. attributable to COVID-19. So now, unfortunately, that number is likely to rise. But like I said, at the moment, it's kind of watchful waiting, active surveillance, and just being aggressive about how we monitor some of these vectors, what we're doing about public spaces and places, and then making sure that if people don't feel well, that they're staying out of the community. Ben, many commercial businesses are struggling with how to manage this risk. Some businesses have instituted travel bans to Wuhan, certainly some Businesses have instituted travel bans to China. Some have cut back on international travel. The Tokyo Olympic Committee has announced it may evaluate moving forward with the Summer Olympics if the pandemic continues into the late spring or early summer. How would you suggest a company think through this from a risk management perspective? Yeah, that's a very nuanced, detailed, and excellent question. It's 
certainly the answer needs to be couched in the limited data that we currently have. So even with about 72,000 cases total that have been evaluated within that previous study that I cited, still we don't know a lot about the rapidity with which this can spread in certain clinical settings, in hospitals, in smaller groups and communities. So that's a lot of the surveillance that's going on to understand some of those things, which the more we understand about that, then we can provide more salient recommendations to corporations, businesses, you know, other entertainment events and that sort of thing. I mean, I certainly think that approaching this from a smart risk management perspective makes a lot of sense. That doesn't necessarily mean that shutting down all borders, ceasing production at manufacturing facilities is really the smartest thing. Like I said, there are lots of other infectious agents around in the public that have higher transmissibility, that are much more dangerous. We've seen a lot of deaths, like I said, with the flu in the United States this year, as we do every year. Measles, for example, we've seen clusters of measles pop up in the last several years, mostly due to anti-vaxxers. And measles is eminently much, much more highly transmissible than COVID-19 and is also much more dangerous. So regardless of the fact that over the past four or five days, the Dow Jones had dropped over 2,500 points, I think we need to take into account all of the available data we have and not just start panic buying and selling and ceasing all travel and trying to isolate because that is to essentially turn our backs on everything we know scientifically about this organism of interest and also the very effective means that we have at our disposal to prevent it. So like I said, proper hand hygiene, keeping people out of work who are sick and looking out for situations where there's travel that is not essential. So I think it certainly does make sense to reduce non-essential travel whenever possible, especially at the current time, because that's just essentially limiting our exposure to risk. You had mentioned to me as well at the front end of this about a discussion that you were having where there was someone who had put a moratorium on travel to Asia and a colleague was saying that it actually turned out to be kind of a favorable decision because it allowed some freedom in terms of being able to decline invitations. Is that right? It was a little more nuanced than that. It was a major consulting firm who made the decision they were going to ban travel to China. And the consultant I was speaking with said that it really was applauded by the employees because it took away the pressure they would feel from clients to travel for really any type of assignment, minor, major, uh, time sensitive, not time sensitive. And the employees felt it protected them in a way because essentially management had their back on that. But Ben, I was intrigued with a couple of things. One, not to minimize this at all, but two of the prescriptions you seem to highlight of good hand sanitation, particularly that's just a good health practice, I think, that uh, my mother taught me many, many years ago. And certainly non-essential travel, what really struck me there, Ben, was that in the risk management scale, there are levels of risk management strategies you can employ. And by identifying non-essential travel and putting non-essential travel off or banning non-essential travel, you actually minimize your business disruption 
because by definition, it's non-essential. And certainly in 2020, there are many other means of communication. We're recording this podcast remotely. Everyone knows about Skype. Everyone knows about Zoom. Everyone knows about other VOIP communication tools that you can utilize, most particularly, again, for non-essential travel. So it seems to me you've really started to articulate a series of strategies that a company could employ all the way up to a lockdown, but we're not near that at all. Yeah, very true. You know, it's interesting because situations like this, and we always hate to see an outbreak be the catalyst for it, it requires the companies reevaluate a lot of their operational processes. And it becomes very easy for scope creep to occur and for non-essential travel to reburgeon. And in situations like this, when you start looking at what sorts of travel and addenda are really not essential to critical business operations, it turns out that it's a tremendous amount. So by focusing on that and cutting it out, businesses not only limit the amount of risk exposure they have to something like COVID-19, which is the respiratory disease that we're seeing at the moment, but also it allows them to employ a little bit of forced operational excellence. By turning that lens inward, they can see where waste exists, where they might not have had a reason to look in the past, let's say, few years even. But I think it also makes sense if somebody's not feeling well, that organizations are also supportive of the employee taking care of him or herself. So typically right now, the CDC guidance for this is if the patient is fever-free without the use of fever-free medications like Tylenol, for example, if the individual doesn't have any other symptoms lingering like a cough, and you know, how often do people come back in from an illness and still have a residual cough? And if they've had two consecutive respiratory specimens collected at least 24 hours apart, and both of those show as negative, then they wouldn't have a presumed risk of exposing any other people. But I think a lot of times there's also that pressure to be ever present for work when, as you said, it could be something like handling meetings more remotely so that we limit maybe interpersonal or group contact or larger community contact, certainly limiting the travel. So there are lots of ways to reduce risk. And as I've talked about before, prevention beats correction all the time. So if you can prevent people from getting infected, that's much better than trying to roll the dice and avoid a 2% case fatality rate or having people go to the hospital to have their respiratory symptoms dealt with in a more critical manner. Ben, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but before we conclude this podcast, I was wondering, do you have any suggestion where if one of our listeners wanted to try to keep abreast of the most current developments, is there a trusted source you would point them to, the CDC or perhaps other? Yeah, definitely. I would say go to cdc.gov and within there, there should be a flagship link for coronavirus. Because like I said at the outset, this is, uh, it's hot on people's minds right now. And frankly, people are worried. I think some of it is definitely appropriate. And I think there's also a lot of it, which people are almost scaremongered into being worried because this is what they're being force fed in the media. And the science that we know about this paints quite a different picture from what you'll see in news broadcasts about it. So check out cdc.gov backslash coronavirus. And there will be a host of great resources. And I would also say relying on hand sanitizers for this particular infection, probably not going to help too much. Coronavirus isn't likely to be destroyed by the alcohol gel 
hand sanitizers. So hand washing is better. Sure, sanitizers if you need to. If you're going to take a long haul flight, certainly wear a face mask if you can find one. I know they've been selling out in a lot of locations. And if you don't feel well, stay away. And your colleagues and peers and family and friends will appreciate that. Well, Ben, now we are at the end of our time, but this has been not only a fascinating exploration of a current event, but really some solid takeaways for the compliance practitioner, a business executive, or anyone else who might listen to this podcast. So thank you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thank you, Tom. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com courses.